Welcome to Prima's ERM Alumni Podcast. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima ERM Alumni Podcast, Sean Cantonese will discuss ERM implementation in response to COVID-19. Sean is the Enterprise Risk Management Program Manager for King County, Washington. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Sean. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So for those listeners who may not be familiar, let's begin with some background on King County and its approach to risk management. King County is in Washington State. We're the 12th most populous county in the nation with 2.3 million residents. King County is located on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples. That's the Duwamish, the Muckleshoot, the Homish, and the Snoqualmie, among many others. And if you've been to Seattle, then you've been to King County. Our namesake is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and this association is intentional. It's informing our strategic interests in equity and social justice especially. We have about 16,000 employees in King County providing a wide range of services, mass transit, public health, law enforcement, adult and juvenile detention, courts, public defense, wastewater treatment, roads, parks, elections. I could go on and on much, much more. We are distinct, though, from the city of Seattle, but we do work together on regional issues such as ending homelessness. Our county's Office of Risk Management Services, that's where I work, handles the tort claims filed against the county. We also handle recovery matters against responsible third parties. We handle complex public records requests, insurance and contracts, and, of course, our Enterprise Risk Management Program, which is where I lead. And now, those are our lines of business and risk management, but I have a few other facts which might help listeners frame an understanding of where we're coming from. For example, before the pandemic, we handled about 1,800 new tort claims each year. In the last year, that's down about 25%, due in part to fewer cars on the road and also fewer person-to-person interactions generally due to COVID safety procedures. For example, we have fewer people detained in our jail facilities due to COVID. Our self-insured retention is $6.5 million for most risks and $7.5 million for risks related to our metro transit buses. So you can imagine this means we have a lot of skin in the game. We have a strong vested interest in preventing the most severe incidents from arising in the first place. And this really informs our approach to risk management and enterprise risk management because we focus on those kinds of risks especially. We started implementing enterprise risk management back in 2014, which it happens to also be the year that I joined the county. And your listeners may also be familiar with our risk manager, Jennifer Hills. She was Prima's risk manager of the year in 2018. When people talk about enterprise risk management, it can be difficult to grasp and make concrete in the mind. Um, it typically involves abstract concepts of standards or frameworks, and it can often feel like it overlaps with auditing or governance and regulatory compliance, which is a common place to house the function in the private sector. With that said, how have you tried to make this feel real for your agency rather than an abstraction? And what's worked in communicating with front lines? Well, I do think we've been successful as an enterprise risk management program, but it's always a work in progress. There's always more to do. Most of our successes can be attributed to three areas, and I know conveniently three things to discuss. Everyone seems to have three talking points, but please bear with me. I think these are actually meaningful. The first is our leadership. Our true north and values are crystal clear, and we can easily orient our decision-making. And by decision-making, I mean risk management, because good risk management boils down to good decision-making. We can easily 
orient to those values, and we use them in everyday discussions. So our risk appetite statement is built on those values and priorities. We actually asked our leadership team, how much risk are we willing to take or accept in pursuit of our objectives in these areas? We sat them down in a facilitated discussion and then shaped the outcome of that discussion into a risk appetite document that's cascaded across the organization. Now, we use this to train first-line supervisors. We use it whenever we have a discussion about claims with a leadership team. We also use it in strategic planning. And even right now, it's in the toolbox as we're looking to our future of work beyond the pandemic and what that environment looks like. I'll jump back to the pandemic in a minute, but you said you have three things to discuss with regards to ERM progress. One that you mentioned was leadership and the risk appetite, they said. So what are the other two? Right. So the other two of those three things. Uh, next is resources. I personally have several roles within risk management and within our immediate work in charting the course to recover from the pandemic. But our enterprise risk management program really started with dedicating time and adding my position to stand it up. We also dedicate some of our resources in risk management to share with our risk owners who are getting the job done in the day-to-day operations of the county uh, since the turn of the century. And by that, I mean since about 1999-2020 here. We've had what we call a loss control fund. It's a dedicated fund to help our agencies handle emergent issues, which might have an aspect of liability for the county. But what we're trying to do is get ahead of those problems, because life in the public sector is such a constant challenge with many competing priorities and limited resources to fulfill those. And this resource lets us bridge that gap and help with emergent risks before they become losses. It gives our risk owners a really good reason to come to us with their problems early on. And the fund right now is $1.4 million for our two-year biennium for our budget which allows us to make a real big difference in some operations. We also have had to be creative with limited resources in terms of staffing. I am a one-person program. My title is Enterprise Risk Management Program Manager, but I don't manage people below me. Uh, Instead, I learned a long time ago that if you're doing it alone, you're doing it wrong. And so we built a team, and that team isn't employees that I supervise. Instead, each major county agency brings their risk manager to the table and they share their perspectives, their challenges, their needs. And that working group owns our risk register. And one thing I'll describe with this here is that not every agency has a risk manager. Sometimes it's a deputy director who has the duties of risk management in a department. Sometimes it is a risk manager in certain departments, or sometimes it's a legal advisor to a department head. Whoever has that role in a department, though, is welcome at that table for us. So that's resources. We've talked about that. And the last one of these three elements, this will bring us back to the pandemic pretty naturally here, is effective storytelling. And that is, we're able to convey the value of the way of thinking with a concrete example in a compelling way. And when we do that, we bring on that next decision maker or we bring that next employee into the fold and help shape their approach to risk when they see the value in what we're doing. Okay, now let's talk about the pandemic. Where have you used this approach to risk in responding to the pandemic, and what has the effect been? So as your listeners are hearing this, depending on where they are and when they're listening, we're very close to the one-year anniversary of the first cases of COVID-19 in the United States. 
which were first identified here in King County at a nursing home in Kirkland. That same site was where we had the first deaths, unfortunately, from COVID-19 in the U.S. And some of the first people who had to isolate from exposure from those cases were first responders, firefighters, medical responders who were facing those first cases. So early in March 2020, King County started building a countywide network, isolation, quarantine, and recovery sites. And we knew the vast majority of King County residents would have the ability and the choice to isolate or quarantine in their own home. But protecting our vulnerable population is one of the most vital interests we have here in King County. We established multiple locations throughout the county to make this happen. But we purchased and leased motels and hotels, a warehouse, and assembled large tents. We opened additional shelters to maintain that six feet of separation for people living homeless. And we also funded hotel vouchers for people in those highest risk categories based on their age or underlying health concerns. So the county also works very closely with our behavioral health provider network to ensure that we have services continued to people with mental health and substance use disorders and to ensure that the provider network is supported to keep their programs operating. And of course, those programs shifted in their form a little bit, but again, keep them operating. Now, the criteria for motels and hotels that we had to purchase or lease, we were looking for places that had doors that faced the open air. They didn't have any shared corridors that had individual hygiene facilities, so their own bathroom, in-suite. We also wanted to make sure that they had self-contained HVAC systems for each room and also 24-7 on-site security. So with all of those criteria, those are sometimes hard to find. And for King County residents who don't have a home or who don't want to expose loved ones in their home, these isolation and quarantine sites have been critical. This has been an essential part of our strategy to ensure and promote the region's public health and slow the spread of COVID-19. And some of the first people to use those facilities were, in fact, those first responders that I talked about earlier. Now, we did all of this without knowing if we would get reimbursed through FEMA or through the CARES Act or through any kind of other federal leadership. There was sort of a vacuum at that time. We took some financial risk to prioritize the health and safety of our community. And that is really an example of taking on that risk in pursuit of our values and support of our objectives in a way that some agencies haven't in the past or can't easily. You know, the pandemic has exacted a significant toll in our communities, especially our communities of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. We do know that King County has fared better than many communities. In this. And the question of how and why we've done that doesn't have really a simple answer. And it doesn't have any one person who can take credit for it. It's really difficult for us to say, well, we fared better than many others when we think about the real costs and see that those costs in our community have also been so high. So no matter how you measure it, this pandemic has cost us dearly. But amid this challenge, our decisions have reflected our values. And that's been effective risk management. Our risk appetite, that document that I mentioned earlier, that's created in that conversation with our leadership, is another good reflection of our values there. It identifies eight key risk areas, and it places three of those risk areas, equity, health and safety, and our strategy, as higher priorities. The other five risk areas are finances, operations, reputation, workforce, compliance. Those are pretty typical when you start talking about enterprise risk management around the world. But our risk appetite document describes the approach to equity as risk-tolerant or risk-seeking. It describes our approach to health and safety as risk-averse or risk-concerned. And if you look at the decisions we've made 
at the time that the pandemic was emerging and also the ones that we're making now, I think the meaning of those assessments becomes clear. Well, that seems to just about cover some of the immediate responses in stabilizing the situation as it was developing. Where do you envision or expect to see this approach help as your agencies grapple with the future and the transitions down the road beyond the pandemic? Well, that's a good question for any agency, especially now. But with new federal leadership and vaccine distribution in progress, we do know that there's a light at the end of this very long and and arduous tunnel that we're in. And with that future in mind, there is a significant opportunity ahead of us if we're properly poised to make the most of it. Uh, We've stabilized this sort of maximum remote posture. That's how one consultant recently described it to me. And some of those changes are permanent. For example, I won't have a downtown office cubicle anymore in that future. But some government operations can't be done from the basement of your home, where I'm talking to you from right now. As we figure out that transition, there are myriad trade-offs and decisions to make. Again, good risk management is good decision-making. So some examples in that area. We can better meet our climate change and carbon emission reduction targets with few of our employees driving to work. But that also means that they're paying to heat or cool their homes while they work. Or maybe they're paying more rent for a home with an office. Employees who don't have to commute, they save costs in that commute time. But what if they were already commuting using their county-provided transit pass? You know, we have to consider whether the shifts in costs will shift the demographics of our job applicant pools. Will we see other equity-related impacts in who gets to telework versus who has to report to a work site? You know, the answers to all these questions are still being shaped. But every one of these decisions can be framed in the context of the areas of our values, our risk appetite, our priorities, and our objectives. And so our role here in risk management is to be there at the table, facilitating those discussions and bringing that lens to bear. We have a team, our Future of Work Steering Committee. Uh, It includes every one of our executive branch departments in King County government, all those different kinds of operations I mentioned earlier. Many of those are in our, our Future of Work team. And my role on that team is the project manager. I'm directing traffic and keeping things on task, and also keeping in mind that all of these decisions, like the decisions earlier in our crisis response mode, really need to reflect our values. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.